Well, as you may remember from last week, we took a little pause from our time in, in John to, um, to speak about what we believe is the gospel call to generosity. We, we continue uh, this week with that pause as we explore the topic of church leadership. Some of you are new to this body, and you may be wondering, why in the world do we have elders and deacons? Where does that come from? Well, realize that it's been quite some time since we've actually preached on the topic of church leadership, and we're going to do that this morning from Acts chapter 6. You can turn there uh, with me. Uh, We'll read verses 1 through 7. As we prepare to, to look to this text, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Would you bow with me? Father, we come to, to this, your word, and in your word we seek your wisdom. Um, we see in your wisdom the beauty of the gospel going forth from the church. And so as we hear, as we seek, would you bless would you bless our church body? Would you bless us as individuals as we hear? And as we hear, let us, let us hear Jesus in his name. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't, I don't know about you, but as I look at, uh, at the, the news headlines and see all that's going on in our economy, I can't help but wonder about those economists in our midst and, and wonder if this is their worst nightmare or if they're living their best life now. <laughs> Because the truth is, so many of us have sat in their classes and we've heard the teaching on supply and demand, but now we're finally listening because we feel it. See, the the economy stopped all of a sudden. And then it started back up. And when it started back up, it picked up the pace and it outstripped supply. Now we can't keep up. There are disruptions everywhere, and you and I all know that those disruptions extend from everything from church chairs to Thanksgiving turkeys. We're feeling it, and we're paying attention. There's two issues when we consider these supply disruptions. One is the very real, very tangible need that comes and is felt when 
when we get to a point of scarcity. When scarcity uh, comes together with need, the impact is, is deep and real pain. It's one issue that, that we see in this uh, scarcity. Uh, but there's a second. You know, where, there is, where there is a problem, there's often a deeper problem, a deeper issue. And, and scarcity draws out for us in the world and, and in the church this second issue. It's the issue of our hearts shaped by consumer expectation. I want what I want, and I want it now. And when I don't get it, I'm going to be upset. It's the heart of consumerism. And when consumerism comes together with scarcity, we have discomfort. My point this morning is not an economic lecture. I actually want us to study the scriptures. <laughs> and I believe in this scripture we come face to face with the issue of scarcity. And it points us to some deep truths in terms of church leadership. We need to look at this text, as I pray we do each and every week, through the lens of our hearts, needy hearts. And as we look to this text in Acts chapter 6 through the lens of our hearts, we're going we're gonna to look and see real, real need. It's also going to force us to examine the consumerism that we might be tempted to demand in Acts chapter 6, there's a problem. The problem that the early church experienced is a problem that the church today experiences. The problem of, of growing pains. If you looked back at the beginning of Acts, you see Jesus in chapter 1, verse 8, laying out a path, a, a plan for, for the disciples. Because they're going to go and they're going to establish what would become the worldwide church. And there in Acts 1.8, you see this pattern that Jesus lays out as he, as he commissions the apostles uh, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Is this plan for the gospel going out in concentric circles as the apostles will take this message of the gospel out to the ends of the earth and plant Churches, But here in Acts 6, we're in the Jerusalem portion of that plan, and the plan is going well. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we, we see the summary of that plan as Peter preaches the gospel at Pentecost. And, and we see there in Acts 2, 41, that, that 3,000 people were converted under the ministry of the word. And overnight, the church has grown. Later, in Acts 4, verses, uh, Acts 4, 4, we see that as the apostles continue to, to preach the gospel, that the church continues to grow. And there, in Acts 4, 4, the church has grown to 5,000. And then we come to Acts 6, and we come to a complaint. What is the complaint? Well, little background will help us to understand. You see, uh, verse 1 introduces a, a cast of characters. There we see mention of the, of the Hellenists and the Hebrews. 
the, the Hellenists were those Greek-speaking Jews who at some point over the course of the previous centuries, their families had been sent away from Palestine and they had been living outside of of this region in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. Their, their language was Greek, quite possibly their culture was Greek, but now they're, they're back in Jerusalem. That's the, that's the Hellenists, it's the Greek-speaking Jews. And then there are the Hebrews. You might figure this out. They were the, the Palestinian Jews. Their language was Aramaic. Their, their culture was more distinctly Hebrew. In the early church, this, this combination of, of Greek-speaking Jews and, and Aramaic-speaking Jews, they came together to form the church. But along the way, the Hellenist widows were not getting their full measure of the distribution of, of food. Now, <clears throat> almost as a side note in this, I want you to see that the church, from its very beginning, has been a, a body that is meant to care for its own. Foundational to the ministry of the church from the very beginning has been this, this ministry of mercy and care that shows up here as, as they took care of the widows and orphans through the daily distribution of food. We in the church are meant to care, and we're meant to care for our own. But again, there's a problem. You know, in one sense, the problem is a bit of an administrative bottleneck, a supply chain disruption, if, if you will. The need is real. These, these widows, they needed food. They depended on it, and they weren't getting it. It's a, it's a very real problem that shows up as the church is experiencing these growing pains. And I don't for one second want to minimize that problem, but let's acknowledge as we dig deeper that on some level that's the surface level problem that these widows were not getting uh, their food. But anywhere there is a surface-level problem, there is also a, a deeper issue of the heart. And we might find a hint at that deeper issue in verse 1. A complaint arose. A complaint. The word speaks to a complaint expressed in murmuring. And grumbling. It's the same word used to describe the grumbling that the Israelites expressed in the wilderness when they didn't get what they expected from God. They grumbled because, on some level, they doubted God's heart for them. They complained against the Lord God. That's the word used to describe this response. A very real need expressed. But quite possibly the way it was expressed speaks to a deeper issue of the heart. A deeper issue that you and I are all susceptible to. It's the deeper issue of self-focus. The truth then can be true now too. 
This is the church in the first century experienced growing pains. The church today can and does experience growing pains as well. We have experienced it. They're natural on some level. They're, expect, they're to be expected. But the question is, how do we respond? Will we respond to the growing pains with murmuring, with, with grumbling, with not trusting the Lord and His provision? Or will we prayerfully seek God's will? Will we prayerfully seek the Lord? It's a deeper issue in the church today. And it's the issue of consumerism. And I thank the Lord as I look around Christ Church that, that I do not see in this church a, a culture marked by consumerism. I thank the Lord for that, but we must be on the lookout for it in our broader body, but also inside our own hearts, because you and I, every single one of us, are tempted to be consumers, to demand what we want, when we want it, how we want it. It is this temptation to build an expectation focused on self-preference. Again, I thank the Lord that I don't see that in this body, but we must be on the lookout. We must be aware of temptations. And as we are aware of those temptations, we must look to God's wise solution. The text speaks of the twelve. The twelve were the apostles. At this stage in the growth of the church, we're focused in in Jerusalem. And and the 12 apostles are functioning in the role that that we view now as as that of the elder. Now later, as the church goes beyond Jerusalem, as those apostles take the gospel out around the region and plant churches, they will appoint elders in those local churches. But here, the apostles are fulfilling that role. And so when the complaint arises, they gather the people all together to talk about it. But what they say in that gathering sounds a bit edgy to our ears. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. What do you hear when you hear that? Is it trying to be edgy? Are Are they being demeaning to others? No doing just the opposite. They're elevating this work. They're elevating this need, and they are gathering the whole body together and saying, this work of caring for our own, caring for the widows, caring for the needy, it is so important that we need gifted, called men to lead our efforts. Because if we turn our focus on that work, Neither will be done well. So what was their work? What was the work of the apostles? As I'm trying to show you the work of of the elders. That question has direct relevance for us today as we consider leadership in the church. And as we enter into this time of of nomination for elders and deacons in Christ's church. The text tells us that their work was the work of, of prayer and of the word. Now, don't let that first portion be lost on you. It's been striking to me 
this week as I've spent time in this text, a text that I know very well. But as I've been in it, it's been striking the order in which the apostles reference it. Prayer. Prayer is fundamental to their work. Do you see the work of prayer as worthy of being included first in a job description? Let's be honest. Rico Tice is a British evangelist, and and he shares this illustration that, if we're honest, captures much of the way we believe, uh, or much of what we believe about prayer. He he kind of paints a picture of a a Clint Eastwood Western. You you know, they're all some version of the same. If you imagine a Clint Eastwood Western, you imagine some, some small, dusty Western town that's under some kind of attack from the outside, and And Clint rides up on a horse looking leathery, looking tough. And he's going to fight off the bad guys. But in this scene in this western town, Clint is there on his horse, probably cigar, cigarette hanging out of his mouth, gun packed into his saddle. And and there's a picture of a frail little monk looking up at him, probably looking undernourished. And he's saying, how can I help? What can I do? Clint looks down at him and says, you can't fight. This work is dangerous. And the monk says, well, I want to do something. And and Clint, kind of with disdain, brushes him off and says, well, I suppose you could pray. And then he rides off to where the real action is. You don't have to say it. But is that the way we think about the work of prayer? Sort of in the background while others go off and do the real work, the real action. Is prayer an afterthought reserved for others or is prayer the work? Worthy of devotion, worthy of protecting, worthy of being in the job description. It's in the apostles' job description. And it's in the elders' job description. Barely a day goes by without the elders spreading around some prayer need where we are praying for you. We are praying for this church. It is a work that is primary. So we protect it just as we protect the ministry of the Word. Ministry of the Word is the second fundamental element of the elders' work here in Acts 6 as they proclaim through the preaching of the Word but also through the conversational ministry of the word. That's the work of an elder, a work that must be protected. It's a work for spiritually gifted, called men to fulfill a spiritual work. But don't miss this. The work of the seven is also a spiritual work. When the text speaks to serving tables, that word serving, that word serving, it's the word for deacon. What was their work? Well, it's a ministry of mercy and service. To lead the efforts of caring for the body. Here in in the text, it was dealing with the distribution of food. Distribution of mercy ministry, but 
But embedded in that is also handling the, the receipt of those finances and goods to be distributed. So as we understand that work today, included in the, mercy, the work of mercy and care is also the, the work of handling the church finances and also by extension, the care of the physical property. But all of that is a spiritual work then and now evidenced by the requirements for that work. Verse 3 speaks to that. As uh, As the word says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. It's almost a summary of the requirements to serve in this work, a summary that is expanded further in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There we see qualifications to serve as an elder and as a deacon. But if you read those, you will notice, I hope, that what is highlighted there. A list of requirements that are spiritual in nature. They're speaking to godly character, to godly dependence, to being led by the Spirit of God. Yes, as we consider and to serve in these offices, we look to competency and and inclination because competency and inclination speak to uh, the distribution of spiritual gifts. They speak to a heart inclined to the work, which evidences God's movement in someone's life. But competency and inclination, they are baseline. They're baseline for the work. We confuse that oftentimes because we're tempted to look for for officers in the church of Jesus Christ in the same way we look for those to serve in the business world. We, we use worldly success as a, as a measure of qualification, but worldly success is not the measure of qualification to serve in the church of Jesus Christ. The qualification here that I, I hope you hear highlighted is that these men are to be led by the Spirit of God. But I also want you to see as we unpack the whole of, of this passage that there is a beauty in the diverse gifting given by God to serve the church. Some here are spiritually gifted to serve. Some are spiritually gifted to shepherd. And we understand also that some are spiritually gifted to lead in the area of evangelism. It's why Michael is gathering together an evangelism cohort to lead those efforts for Christ's church. But the church needs all of those spiritually gifted in shepherding, serving, and evangelizing. Too often in the world we flock to those who are, who are like us. We, we like to be around those who have similar personalities. We like to be around those who have similar gifting. Churches do the same. But when a church does the same, they develop an unbalanced personality. It's why you see some churches that, that have a big focus on teaching and doctrine only. That's why you have some churches that have a big focus on mercy and service and social justice only. But the church of Jesus Christ is beautifully diverse in its gifting. Church is meant to shepherd, to serve, to evangelize, to pray, to teach, to care. But notice I said the church. I didn't say that God's solution, his wise solution was for gifted called doers. No. God's wise solution is for gifted called equippers. 
You do the math. I just told you that at this stage of the game, the the church in Jerusalem is somewhere north of 5,000 people. And yet we read about 12 apostles slash elders. We read about seven deacons. Do you think those elders and deacons did all the work of shepherding and serving a 5,000-member church? That math don't work. No. Ephesians 4 Verses 11 and 12 tells us that God has given in his wisdom as a gift to the church officers to lead the church, to equip the church in this work of doing, to equip the saints for the ministry, for the work of the ministry of the church. So all that we've said about spiritual gifting and and living into that gifting, it is meant for all of us, not merely for the officers in the church. So as we consider that, for all of us, we, we need to consider the deeper problem that I've mentioned. The deeper problem of the heart, of, of being consumers. And consider what it means for us, each and every one of us, to embrace our own gifting, whether we are an officer in the church or not. There's two elements to, to embracing that gifting that I want us to consider. The first is this, there are no spectators in the church of Jesus Christ. We don't have bleachers around so that you can come and and file in and sit in the bleacher, watch and and receive a service, and then go back out to where you came from before. No, we're called to embrace our gifting and to get in the game. And so if you are called by God to serve as an officer in the church of Jesus Christ, get in the game. If you're not called by God to serve as an officer in the church of Christ, allow the officers to equip you and then get in the game. It's the first part of what it means to embrace our gifting. But the second is this. Like the apostles, devote yourself to your gifting. To devote means to give yourself over wholly. It's to focus. It's to focus in the gifting that God has given you. I'll just be honest with you, this is something I struggle with. Maybe you struggle with it as well. Jesus didn't call me or you to do everything. And if you or I are trying to do everything, then we're not being faithful to the particular gifting that the Lord has given us. At the same time, we're also robbing others of being faithful to the gifting that God has given them. Now, I have this blessing of having brothers around me who will call me out on this. And so I'll share with you what they share with me. Don't do everything. Devote yourself to your own gifting. And if you're not sure about your gifting, there's good news. Starting next week in Sunday school, we'll have a six-week class on equipping Taylor Dennard and Nate Pregg will be leading that class. It's the continuation of our new member class, but it's open to anyone. We'll be meeting in the multipurpose room for six weeks, exploring what it means to explore your own personal spiritual gifting and to employ it in the service of the church. As we do so, that is God's design for the church. And when we live into his design, he bears fruit. The 
fruit that we see born in Acts chapter 6 of the church embracing its call is that sinners were converted and Jesus was made known. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God continuing to increase doesn't mean they started adding new books to the Bible. It means that more people began to believe in this life-giving word. It's a summary statement that we see in Acts at at crucial points as as the church goes out. And this crucial point in Acts chapter 6 is when the elders and the deacons, they decided to embrace their calling. It reminds us that leadership has a purpose. And that purpose is much larger than operational efficiency. The purpose of leadership in the church is the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. And when we serve in our gifting, each of us, individually and in our varied gifting, the attention is turned off of us and it's turned on to Jesus Christ. And the world outside begins to watch and take notice. Because the watching world, they don't need us. The watching world needs Jesus, just as you and I need Jesus. And when we see Jesus, it will bear the greatest impact on the world around us. There's a sense in which Jesus models that for us. You would see it if you go back later and read our meditation for worship in Philippians 2. As Jesus humbled himself that he might become a servant. Jesus modeled what it looks like to be a humble servant, but much more than being a model. Jesus is Savior. And he's the Savior of those who struggle with emptying themselves. Because in his humility, he he became obedient. Obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Where on the cross, he paid the price for our sin. And in taking our sin from us, he placed on us his righteousness, giving us a new identity in him a new forgiveness and identity that we receive because of His grace alone, through faith alone. Friends, that message, it took the forefront in the church when the people began to embrace their calling. And as they did so, the number of disciples multiplied greatly, including from among the priests, the very people who had led the efforts to persecute Jesus Christ and send him to the cross. Do you see it? We empty ourselves of self. We empty ourselves of preference and consumeristic desire, and we serve the church of Jesus Christ. Sinners are converted because they see Jesus and not us. That's what's driving the growth in the book of Acts. It's a growth that we desire But we need to be careful when we consider growth, both in how we pursue it and why we pursue it. I've been reminded this week of a book by a man named Zach Eswine. Zach was one of Michael's professors in seminary. He's written several books that have pastored me. He wrote a book called The Imperfect Pastor. 
But it's not merely for pastors. It's a book for all of us. And there, Zach writes these words, Dear Pastor, desire burns within you. You've trained and dreamt of doing large things in famous ways as fast as you can for God's glory. But pastoral work keeps requiring your surrender to small, mostly overlooked things over long periods of time. You stand at a crossroads, and Jesus stands with you. You're never meant to know everything, to fix everything, and be everywhere at once. That's his job, not yours. It's a sweet reminder for me, and I hope a sweet reminder for you, that growth comes from Jesus. And it comes through long, slow obedience. It's also a sweet reminder that obedience is ultimately about the gospel, about knowing Jesus, how he loved us, how he made us, and serving others in such a way that they don't see us, they see him. When they see him, my prayer is that they would know him and love him in the same way. Christ Church, let this be our greatest goal and our greatest joy as we embrace our varied gifting and employ it all for the glory of God. Lord Jesus, your wisdom is perfect. Your wisdom is gracious. Your wisdom is what we need in the church today so that we might empty ourselves of self and see you so the watching world would come to know you. Plant this message on our heart. In Christ's name, amen.